This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus, streamed via internet. Offer ends 2nd of May. Standard pricing after three months. Hello, I'm Rob Parsons and I'm the Yorkshire Post's political editor and you're listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. Uh, joining me, as ever, is our Westminster con- correspondent, Joey Scott. Hello, Joey. How are you? Oh, good afternoon. How are you? I'm, I'm doing OK. I'm doing OK. I feel like uh, we were just discussing it, were we? It's a bit like a Groundhog Day uh, in that uh, you know, earlier this week we found out that uh, South Yorkshire is going to have tier-free restrictions imposed upon it. And as I recall, when we spoke last time, we were talking about the imposition of new restrictions in West Yorkshire and in London. And it's, uh, it's just a, it's just an ongoing, uh, ongoing saga, isn't it? That everyone's, uh, everyone's trying to get to grips with. I mean, you, you've been, um, you've been, you've been talking to local leaders and getting the reaction to the, the South Yorkshire news today. What, what, what have people been saying? Well, I mean, first of all, Rob, I am exhausted with this uh, restrictions stuff. So I can't imagine how people kind of actually living under them feel to begin with. Um, It's been a really interesting week, hasn't it? Because we've had all the stuff in Manchester and Andy Burnham speaking out and really kind of making that point for having a strong, devolved elected mayor and showing the importance of that and how um, crucial that can be. And then, yeah, like you say, on Wednesday, South Yorkshire announced it was going to go into uh, tier three restrictions from Saturday. But then on Tuesday night, just before that, West Yorkshire leaders seem to say that, no, they're staying in tier two um, for this week, at least, um, despite the Prime Minister saying, you know, we're still having talks with West Yorkshire. So it's all a bit of a confusing picture, really. Earlier in the week, York had to kind of deny that it was going up to tier three, it's in tier two, and North Yorkshire was saying that maybe it should be tier two across Yorkshire so it wasn't too confusing. So it's just been like a mess this week, frankly. And I'm trying been trying to keep track of it. And I'm sure readers and listeners um have as well. But it's really been this fight over financial support and and how much they can get. And you know, you'll know as well as I do that local leaders are still fighting for that today. Yeah, absolutely. And in uh West Yorkshire. We I've been speaking uh, later in the episode. You'll hear my interview with uh, Tony Earnshaw, who's the local democracy reporter for Kirklees, one of the areas of West Yorkshire which has been uh, had restrictions already imposed on it. And it's clear, uh, been talking to him, that uh, the local leaders there are, uh, you know, that they, they things change from day to day as far as they're concerned, and they, they hear different things from government and try and uh, try and react accordingly. Um, speaking of things that are a mess and people don't know what's going to happen. Um, tell us a bit about the interview that you've got You've got coming up today. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's been kicking off this week, as if coronavirus wasn't enough to keep us all busy, is Brexit is back. You talk about Groundhog Day, talking about tier two restrictions, tier three restrictions. Brexit coming back and being argued about in the Commons just feels like it's a nightmare over and over again, doesn't it? Um, it's, been, it's been a couple of bits on... Brexit going on this week. Negotiations seem to have come to a standstill between the EU and our UK negotiators as we hurtle towards the cliff edge of the end of the year for agreeing a deal. Um, that's right, we're back on to deal or no deal. Um, and also we've had things like the Intel Markets Bill, which has been back to the Lords and the government suffered a defeat there. And also the Agriculture Bill, which is really important for us in Yorkshire especially, Um discussing kind of post-Brexit trade and the Lords are unhappy about that as well. But I'm speaking about all of that with uh, Professor Anad Menon, who is actually grew up in Wakefield, as far as I'm aware, is a Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at um, King's College London. But he's also the director of the UK in a Changing Europe kind of think tank um, initiative. And he's got some really, really interesting thoughts on 
you know, where we go from here, he seems to think that we, that we will still probably get a deal. He thinks a lot of it is kind of brinkmanship from the PM who has to show that he's taken back control. So it's a really interesting interview. So, well, without further ado, let's uh, let's hear what uh, Professor Anand Benon has to say. Anand, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Zone Country. It's really, really good to have you with us. Really good to be with you. I'd, it's been a absolutely mad week in well for so many different reasons but one of those reasons is brexit has kind of reared its ugly head again and we're right back i feel like well i was gonna say i feel like it's kind of 2017 but it could have been any year over the last four years i suppose I and mean, what are your to kick off your reflections on on i guess negotiations seeming to break down this week to start us off well, I mean, there is a kind of doom loop quality about all of this. You're right that we keep seeing, we keep sort of going around in circles, or it feels that way. But uh, the difference, I suppose, this time is we really are nearing the end of the process because at the end of December, something has to be sorted out, or there's no deal, and there's no extending that. So, you know, this time it's for real. Uh, things will change in January. Uh, and when it comes to the negotiations, it's been a bit weird over the last week because political people have watched what have happened and suggested that it's all a bit choreographed. That's to say that Number 10 and the EU have basically conspired between them to make it look like they've had a massive fight, whereas they both both sides actually are keen to get a deal. And the mood music talking to people is that both sides think a deal is achievable. So it's hard to avoid thinking when you watch this that actually Boris Johnson needed to have a fight for political reasons. He needed to do his, I am not Theresa May, I will not pave like she did act. Uh, and he's kind of done that now. So my, my hunch, and it's no more than a hunch, is that over the course of the next week to 10 days, miraculously, the two sides will sit down again and a deal will come out of it. That's so interesting. I suppose let, let's tease that out a bit because you're right. He needs to kind of put on this tough man show, doesn't he? That he that he won't be kind of, you know, steamrolled by the EU, that he is prepared to walk away. I mean, do you think that's going to fly with people? You said just then that you think politicians are noticing it's a show. How about the public? Uh, I think, well, insofar as the public are paying attention, and let's not kid ourselves, nowadays there's only one issue on the public's radar, and it's really not Brexit. (laughs) But I think people will register just from the headlines that Boris Johnson has said, actually, you know what, I'm not putting up with this. So there's several things, aren't there? There was the uh, internal market bill. You know, Boris Johnson signals his willingness to break international law if he needs to. They were mm-hmm. walking out of the talk. So I think he's getting that message across that here's someone who will do what it takes to get it done. Absolutely. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in a lot of our areas, you know, in, in Yorkshire, especially the, uh, the voted leave. And um, it'll be interesting to see the kind of reaction there. I mean, so... Further than this week, which um, has seen yeah Brexit right back in the headlines and almost maybe kind of neck and neck with COVID, <laughs> kind of. Um, let's let's talk about what No Deal would mean because you've just had a report out on this, haven't you? What yeah. can you talk about about that? Well, I mean, I mean, there, there are two there are two aspects to No Deal, I suppose, aren't there? There's what it means economically and in terms of disruption, and what it might mean politically, which I think sure. is the calculation that's going on in Number Ten. Now, in terms of the first, there's very little doubt, I don't think, if we leave without a deal, there's going to be considerable disruption in the short term. Uh, there are memos floating around Whitehall at the moment uh, that, that outline eye-watering amounts of spending that the government is going to have to do in the event of no deal to do things like, for instance, airlift certain drugs into the country because there's a fear there are going to be shortages because there's going to be hold-ups at at ports. So there will be significant initial disruption. We'll see prices of some things go up because we'll be charging tariffs on them. We might see shortages. The supermarkets are already warning that there'll be shortages of certain fresh products because... Quite simply, it will become a lot more difficult to trade with the European Union as of the 1st of January. Um, And when people, when you talk about the aggregate economic effect, we could talk about whether anyone cares about the aggregate effect because it's not clear that they do. But most of the forecasts are suggesting numbers like 8, 9% of GDP over 10 to 15 years as the impact on our economy of a no deal Brexit. 
which is just huge. It is far bigger, actually, than we expect the impact of the pandemic to be on the economy. And it's really interesting, isn't it, when you talk about spending massive sums of money, because that's what we've seen over the last few months, the pandemic spending that we really didn't expect to see in kind of, well, I guess I was going to say Boris Johnson's government, but he has committed quite a bit of money to some infrastructure projects, but definitely not on something like a pandemic response. So politically for this government, it seems like it's going to be hemorrhaging money. Yeah, absolutely. And you see the first sign, I think, at the moment in the headlines of tensions between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister over just how much money we can spend. Uh, Because obviously the public finances are going to be very badly affected by the COVID response. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the government was keen to get a deal with the EU, because getting a deal will limit the amount that Brexit will cost the economy. And this at a time when, you know, we can't afford to be spending that much more. Sure, absolutely. Um, on the on kind of no deal, we've over the last few again, I was going to say weeks, but months and years. It's like Groundhog Day. Um, have spoken to a lot of businesses in Yorkshire in particular, and I think one of their main concerns has really been that they don't know what's happening. And actually, I sat down last night to um, to watch a bit of telly. I've actually managed to get away from my laptop and writing stories for a little bit, and realised that there was a new advert out with all yeah. these different industries um, talking about how they need to get ready for for January 1st. And um, you've had, haven't you, as well, suggestions that businesses have buried their head in the sand. And that doesn't seem to have gone down very well because businesses just haven't known what's coming, have they? Yeah, it's been tough for business. And you think about it, if you're a business owner, you've been completely caught up with dealing with COVID. And now you're suddenly being told, oh, you've got under 100 days to sort, uh, you know, to prepare for the biggest single change in our trading relationship with our biggest trading partner that we've ever seen. And I think there is a lot of irritation among businesses. The the Prime Minister and Michael Gove did a, a conference call yesterday with some business leaders. And all the reports are that people went away very unhappy because Michael Gove just said, look, it's going to be hard at first, but there's going to be loads of gains to be had. So just get yourselves ready. And that was it. Uh One of the problems here for the government has been its messaging, because obviously, you know, Boris Johnson being Boris Johnson, he's going to want to say that his Brexit deal is a really great deal. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, and this is something that we don't talk about enough, I don't think, even if we get a deal. So even if there isn't a no deal, even if he comes to an agreement with the European Union, it is going to be a deal that severely alters the way we trade with the European Union. Okay, Mm -hmm. businesses are going to have to do a lot of the preparations that they'd have to do for no deal, even if we get a deal. The problem for the government is it's very hard to say we've got a Brexit deal, but actually it's not very good. So you've still got loads of preparations to do. That's not a very easy message for government to give. It doesn't sound great, does it? It's not it's not the most reassuring of of messages. (coughs) Sorry. That's all right. Um, So I, I suppose. You know, we we are we are the Yorkshire Post political party. We are Pod's own country. Is there a almost a north south divide in how No Deal would have an impact? I think there has been some concern from some of our MPs that there is, and that you know places like the North are going to be hit harder by you know those kind of rising costs that you were talking about. Or there's also been issues I know over the agriculture bill and farmers, for example, feeling like they could be undercut in future trade deals. What are you picking up about about that? It's very, very hard to know for sure in terms of regional impact, but there's a few things we can say. Firstly, if you just look at the top line figures, uh, places like Yorkshire are quite exposed to Brexit because Yorkshire does a lot of trade with the European Union. Uh, so as a you know as as part as the overall amount of trade Yorkshire does quite a high proportion of that is with the European Union as compared to say London because London is far more global than the rest of the country so actually ironically London's the part of England that voted most strongly to remain but London is the part of England that is least exposed to trading with the European Union uh, so there is some evidence yes that Yorkshire will be uh, exposed in terms of agriculture. A no-deal Brexit will be very, very damaging because, of course, in that case, our export to the European Union will face often punitive tariffs. I mean, there are some agricultural tariffs that are 40, 50 percent. And that will make those goods a lot harder to sell in the European market. Uh, 
getting a deal, therefore, is quite important for the agricultural sector. But even in the event of a deal, people are going to have to get used to the fact that exporting things to the EU will be harder because all of a sudden the things we export are going to be liable to be checked at borders. There'll be veterinary inspection posts. Things won't move as freely as they did when we were a member state. Absolutely. And the latest uh, on that agriculture bill is that um, the Lords have again kind of this week demanded these safeguards for UK food standards after Brexit. The, um, it's a it's a bit of a complex one, but the bill went to the Lords. They demanded a beefed up role for this trade and agriculture commission that we've got coming for it to have teeth, really, for future trade deals. <laughs> went back to the Commons and they said, uh, no, we don't want that. And it's gone back to the Lords. And again, they have said they really need these. And the fear is, right, that we spoke to some farmers in North Yorkshire um, a couple of weeks ago, actually. And the fear is it's not really over the much-touted kind of chlorinated chicken and hormone beef that we hear about. It's just over the process of producing yeah. food and the fact that other countries maybe with lower food standards, we'll be able to produce things cheaper. Yeah. And that in any trade deal, they would be on the table and then undercar farmers who would go to the wall. So there's so many different parts in play here as well. It's it's a really complex time. And the Lords have been making trouble as well this week with the um, International Markets Bill as well, haven't they? Is that relevant? How important is that? Well, let's start with the agriculture thing. And firstly, respect to you for saying beefed up about the agriculture bill, which I thought was rather good. <laughs> uh, but there's a, there's a curious sort of symmetry here because the farmers you were talking to are expressing precisely the same sorts of worry about exposure to imports from countries with lower standards that the EU is expressing about us. So sure. in the in the Brexit negotiations, there, one of the sticking points is this thing called level playing field. And the EU are saying, look, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to workers' rights, you have to guarantee that your standards won't drop. Because if your standards drop, your exporters will have a, a comparative advantage when it comes to costs when they export to our market. People in our country now are saying exactly the same thing about trade deals we might strike. If we strike trade deals with other countries that don't impose our standards on them, then Yorkshire farmers are going to face competition from products that are produced with a lower uh, environmental or welfare standards, which will therefore be cheaper. So trade is very, very complex, very, very messy, but it involves real trade-offs. You know, if you want to increase trade, you sometimes have to make concessions on standards. Uh, on the internal market bill, uh, this is a bill that was meant to ensure that the UK's own market worked after Brexit. And the reason we need the bill, or the reason the government says we need the bill, is because under devolution, because the Scots and the Welsh and the Northern Irish have the right to set regulations in certain areas, the danger is if they set different standards, we'd have to have checks inside the United Kingdom. Uh, the Scots might want to check you. English exports to Scotland to make sure that they conform to Scottish standards. Now, that's not something the government wants. So the, the, the primary focus of the internal market bill was to say anything that is legally sold in one part of the country has to be able to be legally sold in another part of the country. So that was the primary purpose of this bill. From a Yorkshire perspective, I think what's interesting is that it made the bill makes it clear that when it comes to giving money away, Central government will be doing that and there won't be much in the way of consultation or partnership with local or regional governments. This is, you know, one of the one of the sort of signature things about the internal market bill was the high degree of centralisation it implied about how this government goes about its job. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? It's really interesting talking about centralisation. I'm straying a little bit off of the Brexit theme now, but we've really seen centralisation play out in the last few days with the coronavirus stuff, I think, is, you know, the government touts all these metro mayors and devolution that it wants to see. But then as soon as it all goes wrong, it all comes back to the centre and it's imposed. So it's all been been very interesting. Um, Can I just say on that, the other thing about that is it just shows the importance of the metro mayors and in a sense, underlines the lack of that kind of political authority in Yorkshire. You just think yeah, no, absolutely. that Andy Burnham has achieved uh, being a voice for Manchester. I mean, this is not to do with whether I agree with what he's saying or not, but actually having that kind of elected figurehead for a region 
gives you a visibility uh, that is lacking for places like Yorkshire. I think you're completely right. And I think those who have pushed for a uh, mayor for the whole of Yorkshire have been banging that drum over the last few days as well and saying, why haven't we got this? But um, whilst we're, I guess, on coronavirus, has that set the Brexit process back? Because, you know, we had this this year, didn't we, to get things sorted and no one could have predicted that there'd be a global pandemic to kind of um, contend with. And a lot of government time has been taken up with that. Has it been hit by that, do you think? Uh, I think coronavirus has got in the way, uh, and you know, in, in several different ways, I think. One, just in terms of attention span, the government's been focused on uh, coronavirus, quite rightly so. So that's one of the reasons why we, na- we might now get a sense that we're a little bit behind in our preparations for Brexit on the 1st of January. There's this sort of slightly sort of last minute dot com feel about these pleas to business to get themselves ready for the 1st of Jan. But I think as important, if not more, because of coronavirus, as the negotiations have dragged on, politicians have not been sufficiently involved in those negotiations. Uh, That's to say prime ministers and presidents across Europe, and including our own prime minister, have been so distracted by coronavirus, they've not really paid much attention to the Brexit process. And ultimately, if we're going to get a deal, that's only going to be possible if senior politicians are taking an interest and are willing to make the concessions on both sides that we'll need to get an agreement. I see. I understand. I understand. Because there is, you know, you do have to have some sympathy and there's only so much time that, I don't know, civil servants and politicians have. But I suppose it's um, that maybe they could have been more adaptable in, in, in you know, that, that kind of not, not saying such a hard kind of cliff edge. But I suppose we are we are where we are, really. Um, <laughs> let's let's have a look forward I suppose over the next couple of months and then I guess maybe years you said right at the start you are expecting some kind of miraculous breakthrough what do you think that will look like I mean I wouldn't characterize it as a miraculous breakthrough I think the government (laughs) I think you're right in the sense that the government have done quite a good job of making it look like there won't be a deal because that will reinforce the sense that the prime minister is some sort of wizard when he gets a deal and I think that's just good politics but uh when you start thinking about what sort of deal this is going to be I think there's there's no doubt that it's going to be what you could call at best a thin deal that's to say it's going to be a deal that allows us to trade in goods without tariffs and without quotas, but does very little for large chunks of our economy, like services, that actually doesn't allow us to keep collaborating with the EU in the way we do over matters like counter-terrorism or uh, uh, sort of cooperation between police forces. So whilst there's going to be a deal, it's going to be a deal that will still mean a huge amount of adaptation is necessary in how we trade with the European Union, and companies are going to have to do a lot of work. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I, I wonder really if if we could transport back to 2016, imagine, and we could warn everyone a bit like a back to the future type situation. Um, if we could transport back, is this really the kind of deal that you think voters were expecting when they went to you know the ballot box and voted leave? Is this what you think people were expecting? Uh, I think. We shouldn't underestimate the degree to which, I mean, obviously, lots of people voted in the Brexit referendum for lots of different reasons, okay? Uh, Some people, I don't think there's any doubt, voted to leave the European Union as a protest about all sorts of things, not least things happening in this country. But I think one of the crucial reasons why people voted to leave the European Union is they wanted a sense that we were in control of our own destiny. So it wasn't so much about having specific objectives in mind from having left it was simply about as the slogan went taking back control so i think for many people the simple fact of taking back control justifies the brexit process in and of itself without necessarily any great thought to the practical impacts going forward uh i think you know some people are going to be slightly surprised by the economic impact of Brexit because I think the deal the Prime Minister has negotiated is a lot shallower than, say, the deal that Theresa May negotiated. And so the impacts are going to be greater. But that being said, those impacts will play out over a period of time. And it's not absolutely clear to me that people will notice, oh, look, that's what Brexit's done to our economy, because I don't think it's going to be as obvious or as easy to prove as that. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned Theresa May because she's been throwing some absolute shade in the comments this week yeah. uh, when Michael Gove was speaking. Actually, over the last few weeks, I just wish she'd been this animated when she was prime minister, to be honest. Um, <laughs> there is that. I mean, not just if she'd been this animated as prime minister, but also, you know, so this week in the Commons, she was sort of having a go at Michael Gove for claiming that security cooperation would be as good without a deal as it would with a deal. Uh, but of course, one of the reasons why uh, Michael goes able to get away with arguments like this is because Theresa May herself was very, very bad at explaining the trade-offs. And she was the one who patented that line, no deal is better than a bad deal, which Michael Gove, of course, played back to her in the Commons the other day. Absolutely. And what a mess we are in. I suppose just to kind of finish us off, what what do you think, I suppose, the political ramifications are going to be for this? Because I'm really interested in, you know, obviously Yorkshire politics, but also Northern politics. It sounds like from what we've been talking about today, if if we just leave and seem to take back control and Boris Johnson seems to do this tough man act that we've been talking about people will be quite happy with that but is it that you know that we've got a few years to go till the next election is he in danger of the I suppose the long-term effects playing out actually damaging him in the long term there are lots of moving parts aren't there with politics at the moment and it's quite hard to predict what politics is going to be like next week let alone in 2024 I think the first thing to be said is I suspect the dominant issue in our politics uh, up to the next election will be the economic fallout of the pandemic. Yeah. Because what most economists expect is to have very, very significant rise in unemployment. And I think that is very politically salient and will dominate the political agenda for the next few years. Given that, uh, it is perfectly possible in a way that people just don't notice the Brexit impact directly, however real it will be. Remember, even with a trade deal, Economists expect the negative impact of Brexit to be bigger than the negative impact of the pandemic. Okay, Mm -hmm. but as I said, it will play out over time. And one of the big questions uh, for our politics is the degree to which people make the link between an economy that isn't quite firing on all cylinders and the decision to leave the European Union in the way uh, we have now. A lot, of, a lot of that, I think, is going to hinge on how effective the Labour Party is in pointing to that link. You know, has Keir Starmer got a line that says, look, Boris Johnson's chosen to do Brexit in this way. This way is particularly bad for the economy. He could have done it in other ways that were better for the economy. Or, you know, is that sort of line not going to get any traction? It's very, very hard to know whether Brexit is going to play a part in our politics uh, once we've left the transition period. And it's very hard to predict how people will react. But I, my sense at the moment is that the economics of the pandemic will drown everything out, at least for the next 12 months. But with one exception, I should add, which is if we get significant disruption in the early part of January, that could impact on how people perceive the government. If you get those 20-mile tailbacks of lorries in Kent, if you get uh, shortages in the supermarkets, if you obviously get some prices going up, that will have an impact, but no one is quite sure what that disruption will look like as yet. Absolutely. It's going to be another busy time in politics over the next few years. I was speaking to someone yesterday about about my job and just kind of said, oh, yeah, I was being sarcastic. It's been a really quiet time, you know, Brexit, coronavirus, proroguing parliament, uh, coronavirus again. And it's, 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 looking forward, it doesn't look like it's going to get any quieter so i'm um dialing down the amount of uh, sleep i can expect <laughs> but it's fantastic really? as well in a way isn't it because i mean yeah. for you in particular because not not only we've we got all this stuff going on which is just interesting and exciting if you're a political journalist i imagine but of course the whole north south thing is back with a vengeance now isn't it uh, it is it know, is we saw it over the whole Manchester stuff. But even before coronavirus, this whole levelling up agenda was giving a, at least a rhetorical priority to the North that it's not had for decades. And now you layer on top of that what looks like you know, a slightly varied way of approaching the pandemic for different parts of the country. And that whole regional thing, I think, is going to be front and centre for months now. I quite agree. Something to keep me busy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on Pods and Country. It's been so interesting to talk. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Right, now let's hear from our political editor, Rob Parsons, who's chatting to Tony Andrew about all things that have been going on in Kirklees over the last few weeks. Over to Rob. So this is the part of Podzone Country where we go into local Yorkshire politics and find out what's going on around our region. We've been to Sheffield, we've been to Leeds, Wakefield, all around um, all around the region. This week we're going to uh, West Yorkshire to uh, speak to Tony Earnshaw, who is the uh, local democracy reporter for Kirklees, which obviously it includes uh, Huddersfield, Dewsbury, other towns and villages. And we're going to find out what the big issues are uh, in this part of the world. Uh, Tony, how are you? I'm very well. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So Tony is a, uh, a veteran reporter. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. He's worked for the Yorkshire Post amongst other, other titles. And for the last uh, couple of years, he's been turning his attention to what's going on in Kirklees. And you, you, you've prepared a few uh, sort of a, the, the big topics that are of interest to local uh, local politicians and the first one is um something i think that we we've touched upon with previous uh, reporters the, the the local plan it's um uh, the, the two words that as i've said before strike fear into the heart of many a, a local leader what what's going on in in, in kirklees with the, with the local plan well the planners in kirklees uh, have a quota to meet and they have to build 1,730 homes uh, every year. And over the next uh, 11 years, up to 2031, um, the council has to build 31,000 new homes. So it's a significant amount. Uh, it covers um, the length and breadth of the borough. And Kirklees, um, for people out there who, who might not know the geography uh, of the borough, um, it runs from... Um, Home Firth and the Home Valley at one end, to Dewsbury and Batley, uh, and uh, North Bradford at the other end. And it's a big borough. Um, it's um, a sizable place with a with a with a big population. So if you think about the amount of houses that they're building, um, some of them are concentrated um, in in the urban areas. Uh, there's a huge uh, planning uh, development um, earmarked for Dewsbury Riverside um, uh, between Murfield and Dewsbury. 4,000 houses, which equates to a, almost a new village, a, a mini town. And um, it's a very contentious and controversial uh, project, but it's something that the council is bound to deliver. Uh, it's an order from the government. And if they don't deliver, then they're in trouble. So it's one of these situations where they have to build houses but invariably, um, some of the pl places and sites where the houses are being built um, are unpopular and many people are, are campaigning against it. Interesting. I mean, I guess you'd, you'd find uh, examples of, of that around the country and obviously planning uh, as it, on a national scale is, is sort of come into the news recently, hasn't it, with uh, the, uh, the the planning white paper and the, the, the notorious algorithm for calculating where houses houses need to go so uh, i guess we might be seeing more of that in in the coming weeks and months um now council council homes is uh another one that well there's a particular situation uh in in kirklees and i i gather the council's bringing its its properties back in in house what what's going on with that yeah well that's a conversation that's been going on um over the last few months the council has gone out to consultation with its tenants and its leaseholders. And um, the feedback really has, I think, helped steer the council towards the decision that it signed off um, or, or agreed on rather uh, yesterday in cabinet. So it will take its council properties back in house. Um, the, the arm's length management company, uh, Kirkley's Neighbourhood Housing, uh, that will come to an end. And they're looking at a time scale of, um, well, before the end of March 2021 for the transfer to happen. It's around 21, 22,000 properties, uh, which ranges from, well, you would imagine yourself when you're one bedroom flats through to five bed homes. Um, it's been run as an Almo uh, since 2002, um, but the council has decided that the time is right to, to bring it back into um, 
its own management. Uh, so it's management and maintenance, which will be, be handled by the council. Um, there has been some um, questioning of this by, by the opposition groups. Um, Kirklees is a Labour-run authority, and the Tories and the Lib Dems have each raised questions about how uh, the transfer will work and how the operation will work, um, because um, the management of Kirklees Neighbourhood Housing and the staff of the operation will be absorbed back um, into the council itself. So somebody has said, well, if there are if there are issues um, around management and staffing under Kirklees Neighbourhood Housing, that is still going to um, be present because all of those individuals are moving back into the council itself as employees. Um, the Lib Dems have said that they didn't believe that the, the, the ALMO model was fundamentally broken um, and they, they remain to be convinced uh, of the necessity for a move. But nonetheless, the decision has been made. Um, there are 20 odd thousand uh, tenants in Kirklees and around 2,500 of them uh, responded to the, uh, to the council's consultation. And the council is very, very uh, bullish about its message. It says um, it's listened to tenants and the tenant's voice uh, is is very important, and uh, and has steered uh, the decision to go to go back, um, you know, to 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 remove the Almo model, and to go back in house. So um, I suppose the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see where we're at in eighteen months or two years time when they have a, a review. Yeah. So so what are the arguments for for taking, uh, sort of bringing all the properties back in house as opposed to having it run by a an arm's length organization is it say that there's sort of more sort of con- the council leaders have more control over it oh, i would say that's part of it um something that came out uh in a cabinet meeting was that um tenants are not really bothered um who runs the operation um as long as it's run uh, sensibly uh, and as long as they're receiving the support that they need um which i again i i thought was it was an interesting comment for the council to make and for them to be so open you know, you talk to a tenant and they say, do you want Kirklees Neighbourhood Housing or do you want Kirklees Council? And they say, I don't care. You know, as long as my property is 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 kept in a reasonable condition, I don't mind who does it. So um, 18 years on, 19 years when it will be next year, um, from, from the arm's length model, um, it will come under Kirklees. And there does seem to be a genuine drive to want to do the very best for people. Um, one of the council's mantras is that you work with people, you don't do to them. And um, that seems to have come out, as I say, in the consultation exercise. And um, there does seem to be a, um, a warmth towards the decision um, to move back in-house. That's interesting. Now, uh, moving on to the next topic and I've, I've brought up pictures of this on my computer while we're talking about it it's a, a fantastic place castle hill this uh uh sort of several thousand year old ancient monument overlooking huddersfield and um i gather there's a bit of a debate raging over uh what other things should be in the locality which is sort of uh, moving uh, in, in one particular direction what, what, what's the latest with that uh, Castle Hill, as you say, is a 4,000-year-old is a um, Neolithic hill fort. Um, not much of that is, exists anymore. Um, the hill is the hill. Uh, it can be seen from pretty much everywhere. And there is upon it um, a Victorian tower, the Victoria Tower, um, which was built uh, in, in honour of Queen Victoria. Um, but there also used to be uh, a pub uh, hotel on the site, um, several versions of it had been there before um, a kind of castellated uh, pub structure was built in the 1850s. Um, that was there for many years. Uh, it was very popular um, and it was bought and uh, there was permission to extend it in the early 2000s. Um, but unfortunately, the building was demolished. Uh, the stone was removed and a new build was was started on the site, which the council stopped um, and had removed. And since then, um, there has been nothing, apart from the tower, there has been no other building on Castle Hill. And the debate has raged for a long time over whether um, 
something should replace it um, and if something does replace it what that thing should be and the developers who uh, the Tandy partnership who uh, who bought the site and wanted to extend it um, still have uh, are still looking to develop it and they have put forward a plan uh, for a combined uh, cafe restaurant pub hotel and a visitor center uh, for the land. Now, the issue with this, there's a great deal of antipathy um, towards those developers because they pulled down the original pub and they shouldn't have done. There's also um, anger towards the council for allegedly not failing to act quickly enough and, and, to, and to prevent that pub being destroyed all those years ago. So there is a huge cross-section of um, opinion on what should happen on that site. Some people believe that Nothing should go up there and it should be left to nature. Some believe that there should be uh, a pub, restaurant, hotel, facility, interpretation centre, heritage centre on the site. Um, some people believe that the original pub uh, should be recreated. Um, uh, and then others believe that the, the, the Tandy partnership who knocked it down originally shouldn't have their fingers on it at all. So there's a massive cross-section. The council now seems to be um, saying quite openly that it wants something on that site and it is working with the Tandy Partnership uh, to come up with a scheme that is appropriate and acceptable and, and fits all of those various remits. Um, it comes up at the Strategic Planning Committee on the 28th. Um, the agenda was published last night uh, with a recommendation to approve. So, um, you know, it's, it's now motoring towards a conclusion. The, the fly in the ointment is that apparently somebody has already uh, made a representation to the Secretary of State uh, to call in the plan. So it's by no means over, but it does seem as if the council has nailed its colours to the mast and that it wants something on that hill um, that, um, that replaces the old pub, but which has a slightly different dynamic uh, in terms of heritage and history and culture. So this one will run and run and run. Yeah, absolutely. And um, moving down the hill into Huddersfield uh, it, it, itself, um, obviously, uh, I guess with uh, the current pandemic, people are going into town centres uh, rather less than they did. But um, nonetheless, uh, decision makers in, in, in Kirklees are looking at the future of what the town centre of Huddersfield should look like. And there's some quite striking plans, aren't there? What, what's, what's going on with that? Um, 50 years ago, um, the town centre of Huddersfield was redeveloped and the old market hall was demolished and they created a piazza and a, 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 a highly architectural, um, in terms of the aesthetic, uh, market hall. Um, there was a green area next to the library and uh, I remember in the summertime you would have uh, bands performing and uh, majorettes and all that kind of stuff. Um, 50 years on, the council wants to um, overhaul the town centre in a, in a huge way and they've unveiled something which they're calling the Huddersfield Blueprint and the Huddersfield Blueprint um, is their grand plan, their grand scheme to revitalise and renovate and reimagine Huddersfield Town Centre there's also another one by the way for, for Dewsbury um, so Huddersfield Blueprint is a £250 million project uh, to transform the town centre and it involves um, pulling down the piazza and the buildings uh, around it, um, extending the library, pulling down the, the multi-storey car park in the centre of town and putting something else on that site which could be another car park but it could be something else. The market is going to become a music space, um, the market traders will be rehoused at the other end of town and there will be a, a big open space um, in the centre of town where, where events can happen. Um, so it's it's huge and it's, you know, forward thinking. Um, it's drastic. Um, some people believe it won't happen, but the council seems to be slowly pulling together uh, all of the building blocks and all of the funding for it. Um, and while work hasn't begun yet, um, it's it's looming 
And I think once it does happen, once the bulldozers are on site, um, you know, people will have to, to sit up and take notice. So there's, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, invariably, some people are unhappy, um, but you can't turn your nose up to a £250 million um, restoration project. And that's what they're talking about. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how that develops. Um, we couldn't uh, do a, a, a chat about uh, local politics in West Yorkshire without mentioning uh, coronavirus, obviously. And uh, it's Wednesday morning uh, as we speak, and uh, the news has just been announced that uh, the Sheffield City region, uh, just down the M1, is going into uh, Tier 3 as of Saturday morning. Um, the, the best we know from West Yorkshire is that that is not going to happen yet, uh, talks are continuing with uh, between government and local leaders over the possibility of the most uh, strict uh, COVID restrictions being enforced. But uh, you know, who knows what might happen by the time this comes out? Things do tend to change quite quickly. And obviously, um, Kirklees is one of the areas that's had restrictions of some form. Uh, placed on it uh, for quite a few weeks now since uh, earlier in the summer. So what are local leaders saying to you about how things stand with the pandemic and what what, what might happen in the coming weeks as we we enter winter? I think my my situation is probably very much like yours or our colleagues over in Manchester. Um, uh, It's changing constantly. Um, I'm uh, infrequent connection and conversation with the MPs and um, group leaders and council leader. Um, and I think the the overwhelming uh, feeling or emotion is frustration. And um, I, I put my calls in every morning and the response I get is, we don't know. We don't know what's happening. Um, are we going into tier three? We don't know. It, it, it looks like we will. And then somebody else says, "No, no, it looks like we're still in tier two. That's well, and it's 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 like playing pinball. And you can draft a story, you can write a story, and you you're ready to publish, and it changes, and it's changed in the space of an hour. And I know for I know from speaking to uh, the council leader in, in Kirklees is, is Councillor Shabir Pando, and I know from speaking to Shabir that there is a huge frustration." Um, amongst all groups um, at the the speed of change and how regulations can can change um, almost overnight um, and I know that there's a great deal of frustration with how the government is dealing with this and how it's acting and that there is also a feeling which I think is shared amongst the council leaders in, in West Yorkshire um, that quite often they are being given decisions on COVID, but they're not being presented with the evidence that, that has led to those decisions. Um, the data is not being made available to them. So they're, they're being informed of something which is being imposed. And perhaps those negotiations are not so much negotiations, they are conversations. And the government says, we are doing this. And there's not a great deal that you can do about it, except to try and react. Um, one thing I would say, you know, it's, it's my role to to scrutinise Kirklees Council um, and to to highlight the things that they that, that they do well and also the things that they do less well. Um, they have come under a great deal of criticism um, uh, for the COVID crisis, when it could be argued that some of that has been caused by central government and its local government that is taking the bumps for it. Um, I live in this, <coughs> excuse me. I live in this area. You know, I pay my council tax in Kirklees. My kids go to school here. I've got a great, great deal invested in the borough, and I want it to do well. Um, and I think that there is this this ricocheting around, this pinballing feel of of, of bumping from one uh, drama to another within COVID. Um, and I think genuinely, uh, the council is trying to do the very best it can to react. And sometimes the argument is sometimes that they're not given enough time to be able to react effectively. So, um, you know, it's uncharted territory for everybody. And I think people are trying to do the best that they can. But when we see uh, 
you know, all the issues around Greater Manchester and what's been happening over there with negotiations, it doesn't give you a great feeling of confidence. And that, uh, some of that feeling is what's coming out to me from group leaders, uh, from MPs in Kirklees. And I come back to what I said to you at the beginning, we simply don't know. It's too big. A, it's too big a problem now to have a quick solution or an easy answer, and uh, I think a lot of councils have found that over over the last few months, and they're finding it now in a big way as we go into winter. It's going to be very difficult. Yes, I think that is the uh, the sad truth, isn't it? And uh, it, it's interesting. We were talking about uh, the stance that Andy Burnham uh, has taken as the as the, the Metro Mayor of. Greater Manchester and the sort of collision course he's put himself on with central government. And of course, West Yorkshire currently doesn't have an equivalent figure to Andy Burnham. Uh, obviously, you've got the uh, all the council leaders negotiating together, but it will be interesting to see uh, when uh, West Yorkshire does have a Metro Mayor this time next year, what difference that makes in terms of its ability to uh, negotiate with central government on, on vital topics like this so um tony thank you so much for for your time that that was a fascinating look at what's going on in Kirklees. a lot of these issues i think we'll be uh, coming back to uh, in in a few months time to see how how they developed so um we'll we'll see you uh, again for the next uh, for the next installment and uh, thank you for listening bye bye thank you for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. And also on the podcast today was Rob Parsons, our political editor. You can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And we would really love it if you could leave us a review, share, subscribe, tell your friends, all that kind of jazz. And we will speak to you again next week. Esophageal cancer. Hard to say, isn't it? But not as hard as it is actually having it. That's why we're asking you to shake your lolly for esophageal cancer for Lollipop Month throughout April. You'll be helping to fund cancer research, to increase early detection and to help save lives. A little lolly goes a long way, so donate today or start a fundraiser. Get ready to shake your lolly for the 30 days of April. Visit ocf.ie to find out more.